0: You'll just have to believe me when I tell you that Friendly Fire is on the up and up when we say these are randomized movie selections. Two sci-fi movies in a row? Really? Affirmative. Did I protest these films being added to the list as not being war movies by any definition? Roger that. Was I ignored by my co-hosts as they flooded the initial list with every movie they could think of from the 80s and 90s where the main character wore a sweat-drenched and shredded tank top and half their dialogue was quips? Yes, again. Let's go back to this period, the late 80s, when I was in college. Adam was running around the fountain of some mall food court somewhere yelling, Catch me! Catch me! And Ben's parents were in Berkeley marching in favor of the Sandinistas and debating whether having children was good for the environment. Hollywood was under four feet of savings and loan cocaine, and action films had gotten really, really big. The United Arab Emirates built an airline just on the proceeds from the gasoline they sold Stallone for that scene in Rambo 2 where the helicopter drops a 50-gallon drum on a waterfall and triggers a 10-minute-long cascading series of napalm fireballs that made young Adam spill his fresca all down the front of his jams. Enter James Cameron at the first of several heights of his creative powers. A man so unbearable that he wrote Aliens and The Terminator and Rambo 2 at the same time. It's a period of creative output that is positively Herzogian. Except, you know, good. Well, not good good, but corny action good. Which, as we've established, my cohorts think is the same as good, but which isn't. In 1979, the first movie, Alien, came out of nowhere, and in the new style of the time, when the cocaine was only two feet deep, the studio saw it as a franchise opportunity, which was a license to print money. This was right about the time that Detroit realized they didn't have to completely redesign all their cars every three years, and they settled into making the same K cars and Fox Mustangs and Caprice classics unchanged for the next 25 years. Hollywood hired Cameron to make the sequel, an alien, and all he had to do was just show up, film a guy in a rubber suit covered with fake mucus, and then cash a big check. Just make a K-car, in other words. Instead, inspired, he wrote a 45-page treatment in four days, created a brand new world that felt close enough to the old world to seem like the same world, developed mostly new characters that likewise, and pivoted away from the horror genre and into a more conventional and profitable big-time action movie genre. Side note, when Adam sent me his first draft of this intro, it said right there, war movie genre, if that gives you any indication of how hard it is for me to do this job. People argue that this is a Vietnam War allegory. A technologically superior force ventures deep inside a hostile foreign environment, fighting an enemy that uses tunnels and guerrilla warfare tactics to surround and overwhelm. There are some badass marines who are just regular folks trying to do their goddamn job on this fucked up mission. Also, like the Viet Cong, the aliens have acid for blood and are eight feet tall and appear not to have eyes. You could argue that Heathers is a Vietnam War allegory if you want. Please post your essay on Medium where I can be sure not to read it. Anyway, Sigourney Weaver did not want to do this sequel either now that she was rolling, literally, in the big Ghostbusters bucks, But Cameron's persistence and the studio paychecks prevailed. Her personal apprehension mirrored that of her character, Ellen Ripley, who refuses sleazy Carter Burke's invitation to join the mission until finally... She relents against her every best judgment. Paul Reiser somehow manages to tweak his trademark lovably anxious goofy Jewish dad persona, the same one that America gobbled up on My Two Dads and that one sitcom named after a Belinda Carlisle song, into one of the most disingenuously slimy, hateful, possibly anti-Semitic toady villains in the history of film. He is a liar we all know is lying, but we can't quite catch him in the lie, and for some reason we all go along with him with a pervading sense of dread until every suspicion we had about him is confirmed. So, the colonial marines freeze-dry themselves and wake up at mining planet Hadley's Hope, where they sift through the aftermath of a great battle before they cash their ticket one by one in horrifying fashion. If we were watching this movie in a black neighborhood, everyone in the theater would be shouting, don't go in there for the whole second half of the film. The big bug enemy doesn't communicate. It never sends a list of demands. It definitely does not enlist the help of a young Jane Fonda to make its case more sympathetic to the American people. It just relentlessly surrounds and overwhelms. It's just a matter of time before Ripley and Newt are cocooned in slime and have adenoidal horseshoe crabs blast out of them. As all of Burke's promises are broken, the survivors fight on, both against the aliens and, by dint of their will to survive, the heartless corporate government forces that brought them to this place. It's a cocktail of combat, paranoia, action, offensively implausible biology, and horror. It is the unicorn sequel. It expands upon its source material, yet is able to stand independently on its own merits. It is the Home Alone 2 of Vietnam allegories. Ripley is the quintessential strong female lead, a plausibly ferocious fighter, strategist, and leader. The Marines look up to her, the civilian advisor, and it isn't long before everyone in the film defers to her. And we, the audience, also defer to her. She is the only goddamn person in this movie, and maybe in this whole misbegotten world we can count on to get us out of this mess. She and Imperator Furiosa are the only people I trust anymore. And Sarah Connor. Squad goals. So, she saves the day, and Newt, and vanquishes her enemy in, well, frankly, at least from the perspective of alien historians, an orgy of genocidal baby-killing mayhem. Let's not take the analogies too far here. It's an ensemble film, it's a science fiction film, and yes, it's a war film, I guess. Although, no, it's not. Today's Friendly Fire places a substantial dollar value on this facility as we discuss the 1986 James Cameron sequel, Aliens. Huh. Yeah. Absolutely Say it again, y'all.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast we record as we pedal our Wayland Yutani brand big wheel tricycles all over LV 426. I'm Ben Harrison.
0: I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick.
1: This, uh, <laughs> another movie that kind of strains the definition. It's definitely a soldier's movie.
0: Yeah, I, 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 wrestled with it throughout the whole thing, kind of wondering whether we needed to, to roll back the, um, definition of war picture a little bit get a little bit more stringent but then i pictured adam then i pictured adam (laughs) sitting in his easy chair just throwing popcorn at his face this is almost entirely
2: a vietnam war allegory i can't believe that you're saying this
1: are you kidding me john maybe you just need to quit your grinning and drop your linen
0: i guess so Uh, yeah it is i i mean it's 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 an allegory but it but you know an allegory of a war film is not a war film
1: the man in the black hr giger inspired pajamas
0: <laughs> how dare you but but i do feel like the amount just the sheer amount of marine corps uh unloading <laughs> like just barely tipped it over into like l- authentic war movie yeah and oh and also like faceless unknowable enemy that just keeps coming in waves and yeah.
2: and the the trope of like training and technology uh being unfit for the mission you know thinking that you're going to go to a place and just turn it upside down on the virtue of your superior firepower
0: right the cockiness of the military that then they Get their comeuppance. Yeah, all right. I, I, It is a war movie in many ways.
1: Hudson should have figured out how to get out of that chicken shit outfit way earlier.
2: <laughs> it's uh, it's officer versus enlisted, too, in a, in, in a relationship that we've seen a lot of times in these war movies. True. And you've got the
0: corporation, yeah. um, which often is like, uh, for instance, in Adam's other favorite movie, Rambo 2. Right. In the form of some <laughs> short-sleeved CIA
2: Minions. You think you're making fun of me with lines like that, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're just like yes. <laughs> Movies of this era always make me want to ask John if he saw this in the theater and what the circumstances <laughs> of seeing it were at that time.
0: So, uh, Alien, I was too young to see in the theater because I'm. I was not. Uh, like a horror movie dude as a kid and my people weren't so there was no like let's go see the new like super horrifying nightmare movie so when alien came out i was uh that was 1979 and i was Mm -hmm. not i did not see it um and i think i have seen alien only in vhs but aliens came out the summer after I graduated from high school. That's the perfect time. So it was like, it came out in July. I'd been out of high school for a month and a half or something like that. But I had left Anchorage and was hitchhiking across America by July, by the middle of July, 1986. So I didn't see aliens right away uh, because I was like, uh, pretty far out of the, I was off the grid bros, (laughs) (laughs) but it was such a popular movie that it stayed in theaters long enough that I caught it at a discount theater while it was still in the theaters, but it was like a, you know, a 99 cent movie or something in an afternoon. (laughs) So I saw it on the big screen and it was really for by nineteen eighty six standards, it was really astonishing how good it looked, how real it felt. It just blew every other kind of sci-fi movie out of the water.
1: And most of these effects really hold up. Yeah. Like like there's a couple of parts where you're like, ah, it's a little tiny model, but I mean like there's still stuff in there that I don't even know how they did. Like the the loader mech that they use to pick up missiles and load them into the dropship.
2: Yeah, that looks great.
1: It's perfect.
0: Yeah.
2: It also uh it doubled down on the on the dirty future that Star Wars kind of began. And I'm wondering, I guess for and its Blade time. Runner. Yeah. Did this film win over Star Wars people in any demonstrable way or if you were a sci-fi fan in the 80s, did you like and consume at all even by today's standards i feel like aliens is such a unique film that you could play it for as new right now and it would be as incredible as it must have been in the mid 80s
0: yeah i think so that in the 80s that hr geiger look or geiger i don't know how you guys would insist it be pronounced i believe it's pronounced spokane (laughs) (laughs) um that style of art was very uh, contemporary and widely disseminated. Uh, there were there were some magazines like there was a magazine called Heavy Metal Magazine uh, um, that that had that kind of artwork in it. Um, Omni Magazine. It was sci fi culture was was ascendant then, and it was really interested in lizardy aliens and like greasy, dirty futures so it in a way it felt it felt very contemporary i mean it was still astonishing to see it like laid out in front of you but i think for most sci-fi fans myself included movies like this that were set in the not that distant future yeah made us really expectant you know in the same way that people in the 50s and 60s were like okay flying cars any day now (laughs) <laughs> I think people my age saw movies like this and were like, "Yes, okay," because we were in space, right? We had space shuttles, like it was plausible. When you see that shot at the beginning, that was that's part of the extra footage, yeah, of that space station. Shit, man, that seems buildable, right? Yeah,
2: like why the hell don't we have that for Let's the get out there God. and build that shit? Yeah, like what the hell, Elon Musk? Like get it done. This is such a near future thing, too. Like, I think this film is set in the 2100s. Yeah. And that's such an interesting version of the future to see.
1: I had this fantasy watching it. Like, what if this film was just set in 1986, but like a version of 1986 where we had space? It kind of was, (laughs) yeah. I mean, the the problem with all these films is that there's, you know, bad grainy analog pixel shit happening on all the TV, like the, you know, CRT TV screens and that looks impossibly dated now. And then when Ridley Scott goes back in 2015 and makes Alien uh, Covenant or whatever, it's like everything's a hologram and everything's super clean and super super advanced looking and it's supposed to be a prequel to this mm. and it's like I, I think the cooler move is make it look like the 70s imagined space would be mm-hmm. you know?
0: yeah right i mean they sit down and they're basically working at compact portable computers <laughs> yeah <laughs> green screen
2: like rewrite the encryption Ben, you and I probably saw it, Uh, I know the first time I saw this film, I didn't have the good fortune of seeing it in a theater, but it was after renting a Laserdisc player (laughs) from a video store, and after finding out, like, I had watched the VHS for years, but but this special edition was, was going to be amazing because of its 20 minutes of extra footage. It was only available on Laserdisc at the time, and so me and a bunch of high school friends rented a Laserdisc player and then watched it. You pulled your
1: crumpled up pocket bills yeah. and <laughs> fun.
2: Well, let me ask you
0: guys this, because we've seen already a couple of films on our show. Um, Apocalypse Now and Star Wars both leap to mind. Our uh, films where the director later on came in and added other stuff in the Apocalypse Now case, you are you are still welcome to watch the actual film and not mm-hmm. be abortion <laughs> in the star wars film you are forced you
1: say that like abortion is a bad thing john i just <laughs> in- want to remind our audience that we're all all uh dyed in the wool liberals here and we are not just pro-choice
0: we are pro abortion
2: look my but- position on directors uh, <laughs> versions is that they should be safe and rare that's right. <laughs> well, and
0: also like uh, as as much as I sit around being super duper pro abortion, I do not watch them for entertainment. <laughs> and uh, but this is like the, uh, the really rare case. And, and, you know, in Blade Runner, it's arguable which of the 45 different versions of it is the canonical one. I, pr- I like them all. But this one, the additional foot, this was the first time I'd ever seen it with the additional footage. Mm-hmm. And it not only does it belong in the movie, but it really advances so many of the what had formerly been kind of obscure or unarticulated uh, plot points. Right. Like it just adds so much and the are the, the missing footage looks great. It's like smart. Like what the what were they thinking, first of all? But like you guys tell me when did the missing footage show up in the movie? And is that the first version you saw?
2: The studio made Cameron shorten the film, like for for time. Like that was purely a time decision up front. That's awful.
1: And he wasn't like he wasn't fuck the studio James
2: Cameron yet. He wasn't fuck the studio, James Cameron. He also, this film was still being worked the week before it was released. So the, like his ability to gain any kind of leverage to, to complete things that may have been unfinished leading up to its release date. Like there was none. He either made his window or he didn't. And fuck you, James Cameron as Ben said, like didn't exist yet. He didn't, he couldn't push a, a deadline out at this moment in his career. Is
0: this the first version that you saw? No. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 hard for me to
1: remember. I think um, I think I've seen both versions, and I probably saw the original version first. But like the the gun turret scene, I the understand. The sentry guns. To, yeah, I understand yeah. to be something that was added back in.
0: Yeah, that wasn't in the film.
1: I think of that as canonically part of the film. So sure. I think that the special edition is the one that I envision when i think about this film
2: as a high schooler the century guns were the thing that stuck out to me as the big ad but as an adult it was the scene where uh ripley finds out about her deceased daughter and the way that that loop gets closed by the end of the film that ripley gets to become a mother again that was deeply satisfying
0: that was a huge part of the film like we didn't we never heard about ripley's daughter except in that except um well, I'm not even sure if that scene where Newt asks her if she ever had a kid, I don't remember whether that was in the first version or not, but you did not have that, like...
2: Yeah, all references to her daughter were were removed from the theatrical version. This is just a purely... That's insane. You thing. know, that's like... That's like s- the core of the movie.
0: <laughs> huge motivation uh, uh, for her character and also like, oh my God, it breaks your heart. She, The last time she saw her daughter, she was 11 and Newt is what, like nine? Uh, like it's so it's such a beautiful closure but also the scene the entire concept that Burke had sent the email basically to the colony saying hey go out and check out this thing and see if you can grab some of these eggs like the whole the whole blood on Burke's hands thing was not it was not explicated as much as it was in this version
2: in a film that is full of like terrifying images that single chuck wagon going out to the crashed alien ship is so deeply terrifying cuz they show so little like you see the sh- you see the the chuck wagon go out you know it's full of a uh, a nuclear family you see mom and dad head in but you really don't see what happens inside that ship all you see is the is the consequence later is that a
0: GMC RV?
2: <laughs> hey, now.
0: <laughs> Careful with that kind of talk. I love that Adam is referencing, I'm assuming, the Chuck Wagon dog food commercials of the 1970s. Is that oh, what yeah. you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ready to feed the puppies, mom? Ready. The thing is that I, one thing that you guys cannot uh, ever do and that seems like a small thing but it's actually a big thing is see this movie without knowing who Paul Reiser is. Mm. This was one of the first his first appearances. I mean, he was in Diner, but I I hadn't seen Diner. You know, most uh, the the audience for Diner and the audience for Aliens
1: well, it's on the list, so we'll see it eventually.
0: <laughs> Another one of your guys's pork chop movies, except literally <laughs> like they're eating pork chops. Um, but Paul Reiser was an unknown actor. He had not done any television shows yet. I mean, he wasn't unknown, but he, his character was not something that everybody was soaked in like we are now. And so here was this actor appearing on the screen, and Not knowing who Paul Reiser is, if you can watch that performance and imagine it's the first time you've ever seen this guy, that's smarm. He's so good. Like from the moment he arrives on the screen, you're like, I don't trust this guy. And yet he's like really broadcasting how trustworthy he is. I mean, it was a it was a very uh, he was the scariest thing in the movie from the start.
1: Yeah. He's the guy that will put the profits of the company ahead of human life. Every single time.
0: Yeah, and he somehow believes it internally, but he's also yeah. just like always
2: spinning and weaseling. And I think he's a sociopath. That's the biggest thing, John. Like when you say that he believes it internally, like that is the the deepest manifestation of evil is is the guy who thinks he's doing it right, even though he is evil.
0: I, I worried on this viewing that it's a little, it's slightly antisemitic, the portrayal.
1: I, I debated this with my wife a little bit because I've always felt that, and she was like, no, I don't think so. I don't think that they're making him a Jew, but it's a Jewish actor <laughs> playing a money-loving evil corporate man.
0: I don't think it crosses the line over into it, yeah. but but it certainly it reverberates pretty close to that line in a way that in 1986 nobody would have commented on, I don't think, outside of maybe the New Yorker, uh, but now I, don't, I think that portrayal would get called out.
1: Uh, he refers to the Marines as tough hombres, and I wonder if that's where Trump's coinage of bad hombres derives from.
0: <laughs> I always thought it was probably from a ZZ Top song, but... <laughs>
1: I think I've heard James Cameron talking about how there are Marines in his family, and the, this movie for him was like kind of about paying tribute to what that life is like. And they really do exalt in the kind of quotidian life of Marines toward the beginning of this film, like when when they're like coming out of the cryopods and the. And the surgeon is like popping the stogie in his mouth and walking up and down, twanging on them that every day in the corps is a is a great day and every
0: paycheck is a fortune yeah, they didn't really oorah it quite enough or semperfy it they didn't you know like <laughs> they did quite a bit of of uh, marine culture building, but I felt like it was not accurate actually, like for instance, Hudson calls his gunny sergeant or top sergeant he calls him sir at one point um at that right right when they're getting out he's like sir can I ask a question and that he would have just gotten his ears boxed for that that's not uh, they wouldn't have called a sergeant sir
1: well you don't know how things are
0: in 2100 or whatever Uh, I mean you're right I'm not like the expert on the marine corps culture but what I wanted I think was there was them to be a little bit more correct I love that like chest bumping vibe once they got into battle yeah but when they're first waking up from the the pods and they immediately are just like a bunch of high schoolers i felt like even if they were hardened combat vets with 42 drops or whatever they were claiming to be i feel like they would have been able to muster proper uniforms and you know, like, at least come correct at the start. It, it felt a little bit
2: corny that they were already, like, in the foxholes. But if they come out of the cryo chambers as strict Marines right off the bat, it anonymizes their personalities in a way that make you not feel anything when they're eventually killed. Like, this is a, sort of a master class in establishing, like, a large ensemble cast made up of individuals. Like, you need this scene in order to get to know them as individuals. If they come to attention right away, like, there's nothing there. I feel like they could have split the difference.
0: So I wouldn't call it a master class. I would call it a, uh, like, a baccalaureate grade class.
2: <laughs> I think the efficiency in, in developing characters for each of these individuals is what makes it a master class. Like, everyone is different from another person, and there's, like, 12 of them. And for a film of this length, I just think that's a pretty pretty great magic trick that was able to be done.
1: This is also the first film we've seen, I think, that has women as, like, totally integrated into a military unit. And I wondered, like, how that played in 1986 when that was, like, a super controversial idea.
0: Well, it's f- it's funny because this movie has, like in some ways, the strongest female lead in film, even to this day, and also was very anti-corporatist, anti-capitalist. And I think it's tantalizing for a 2018 audience to think, and we've talked about this before, it's very tantalizing for us in the present day to think that this is – the first moment in time when there has been feminism and anti-capitalism <laughs> uh, and that we have completely invented both of those things. And everyone that came before was just living in enslavement and ignorance. Um, but this movie was it was certainly like n- like radical and but it was like radical and affirming. 1986 audiences were ready for Sigourney Weaver to be a badass. And this movie Really. I mean, it was an enormous hit, and the idea that that in '86 people weren't already very, very conscious of the fact that Hollywood did not have strong female leads, and that um, and Sigourney Weaver's performance and Oscar nomination for that performance were like were greeted just like Wonder Woman or Black Panther were greeted this year, as like welcome and it's about time, and like people were were super down with it
1: was it controversial in the way like you get a Breitbart type website writing screeds against wonder woman or whatever like was there a, a portion of the body politic that hated what aliens represented
0: well sure and the great thing about science fiction is that you know the people that want to roll their eyes they're like
1: i like that it's against jews but i don't like that it's pro women
0: (laughs) you know and uh, but but you see that in our culture now right there are a lot of people that wanted to go see black panther because they love superhero movies but then they go and they sit there kind of like mad at the like black power message but it doesn't keep them from going to watch like the ass kicking fighting movie right and in in a lot of ways like The amount of color blindness or like sex bias blindness that that a lot of people that if you really if you really challenge them about it, they're going to have what we would think of as being kind of uh, bogus opinions. But if you don't if you don't get right in their face about it and you let them just be bathed in a fantasy, uh, they're going to I mean, there were so many people that went to see aliens that didn't believe there should be women in the military but they're also able to say like, well, maybe a hundred years from now, it'll be fine. Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> these are the same people that are like, oh, well, you know, I don't think uh, I don't like black people, but my friend Charlie is great. Yeah. Those are
2: Hudson people. Yeah, like, it's like, that like, kind of like thing. To them, Hudson's the main character in this film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, because Hudson's like, have you ever been mistaken for a man?
2: John, honey, it's late.
0: And he just gets shut down and, the, and everybody cheers except for the people in the audience who are like, well, he's got a point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like it's just uh, I don't think the divisions between people, I mean, we're living in a world where it's it, we're even saying that sounds crazy, but the actual divisions between people are not that are not as great as we're I mean, we're 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 pouring so much energy right now into how different we are from each other. But anybody that Lives in America can see that Sigourney Weaver is a badass and that thank God she's in this movie because little by little, everyone else is incompetent. Like she doesn't stride into this job. Yeah. Right? She's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. I just want st- to, oh my God. All right, I'll go. And then she's like, All right, shit, I'll go. Okay, sure. T- teach me how to use a gun. Fine. You know, like at each stage of the thing. <laughs> she's like oh fuck can nobody else do this she's the reluctant hero and you know and it's great because it's completely believable and by the end you're like everyone else is screwed up and she goes back in and you believe it there's nothing there's nothing in her performance that for a second questions whether or not she's the most capable person on this mission
2: it's earned because she's not there purely for revenge like she's trying to destroy the thing that is psychologically torturing her like she can't live a normal life unless she goes back to the planet
0: well and she's just she's such a good actor yeah i've never seen a film that establishes a character so early on uh Paul Reiser is like a a, is a schemer from the very beginning. But the first interaction they have, she's like, "Can you just shut the fuck up and tell me what I'm asking?" Yeah, you know, like she (laughs) she takes no shit from him. She is never once bamboozled by him.
1: Yeah, she is not like wowed by the cut of his Savile Row future suit.
2: It's such an (laughs) interesting like good cop bad cop thing that the corporation does with Burke too, because Burke is like the public facing PR guy. He's the he's the guy who's supposed to have a conscience and he comes in carrying the cat. But like during that that inquiry panel scene, like the members of the people judging Ripley don't even call her by her name. Like they call her E. Ripley. Like she's so anonymized to them. She's only a person to Burke. And that's what makes the rat fuck hurt so much more later on. It's like this misplaced trust. He sees an angle, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's
0: trying to manipulate her rather than be straight with her because he can't, he can't be straight.
2: That scene is a real James Cameron movie. I don't want to say trope. I want to say something less strong than trope. But like the idea that, that Ripley is so much like Sarah Connor in that scene and that she's, she's been a witness to something terrible and no one believes her and she's predicting something terrible to come and no one wants to believe that either and she just loses it in that room and is seen to be an insane person. And, and they just sort of tut-tut her and pat her on the head and say, we're going to take away your, your rank so you can go work down at the docks. Like, this is a thing that, that James Cameron movies do. They, like, disempower and empower their female leads.
1: Yeah, they, like, while officially disempowering, wind up, you know, like, the, the female leads are always stronger than the disempowerment that they right. are confronting
2: welcome back to fireside chat on kmax with me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the west coast oliver wong and morgan rhodes go ahead caller Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives.
0: Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince Joni Mitchell and so much more.
2: Uh, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks. Deep
0: dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun.
2: Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the Smash Hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous.
0: World famous. World like stars on the Hollywood walk. Okay. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. enormous subtexts of class and both sarah connor i mean sarah connor is a blue collar restaurant worker um not special not college educated not the center even of her own life and ripley is uh, in alien she was i guess the commander of the ship
1: no what's the guy the guy from mash is the is the captain
0: but she's like some kind of i don't know but but in this film she is established early on as low rank basically and the only reason she's on this mission as is as an advisor but she's not tom scarrett is the captain tom scarrett right you know like the whole thing about her being a forklift operator uh, and that being how she establishes her credibility with the troops it's it's all very blue collar fetishizing she's being uh relegated or ghosted by the corporates but it's as much a class issue as it is a gender issue um, she's just like this low status person and why should she be believed and then throughout the film where we are we're given the opportunity to feel like all of this you know all this highfalutin stuff is no match for a gal and her front end loader the ammo go.
2: Al Matthews plays a pawn and in the exposition part where we're getting to know all the characters he has maybe eight lines that are totally unique reads to that actor like I don't know whether it's the cigar in his mouth or just the look of bemusement on his face when he and (laughs) Hicks watch her in the loader but that scene always cracks me up like when she asks them where they want it and and he says Bay 12 please like Mm -hmm. I feel like you could take 10 runs at that line and not arrive at that choice that he makes. And you could say that about all of these, like this entire ensemble takes such unique reads at their lines that I think it it serves to create, it serves to differentiate their characters from each other. When
0: he does that, like,
2: Hudson, get over here! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like so strong, and you. But you also feel that the, the compassion and the love he has for his men. You know, yeah. it's just like it's a thing that. Uh, who's the superhero writer director that kills all of his characters? Famously, Joss Whedon, right? Yeah, it's a thing that modern storytellers and filmmakers are only now like really doing a lot, which is like making characters and the people you love, and then killing them for emotional effect, like. Apon, I think, is the third to die in the first raid. But as soon as he goes, it tips the entire film into, holy shit, like we have lost. (laughs) This guy was supposed to protect
1: us. He's the one holding it all together.
2: Yeah. And in a scene where like five Marines die in rapid succession, for Apone to be one of them was so terrifying because after that point, the rest of the surviving marines are screaming at each other about what to do and fucking gorman is in the apc uh not talking loud enough to be heard by anyone (laughs) well that
0: was that's so disturbing where he's just like um um, i'm just losing it i mean the classic lieutenant about to get fragged
2: yeah, they did a great job uh, giving background to that lieutenant character too. like sitting by himself in the mess hall, admitting to not being on very many jumps like there's efficiency in his background there. Like they drop a few breadcrumbs for him where, you know, exactly like you can predict with some accuracy that he's going to fuck things up later well that's
1: also kind of a trope like the the super wet behind the ears lieutenant straight from west point who's never seen any action you know
2: and you know not to trust him because this first scene is with burke although that's an added in
0: scene that wasn't in the original yeah and he arrives he arrives in the movie first of all ben he did not go to west point he's a marine lieutenant
1: I'm saying it's a trope. It's a trope in uh, other things.
0: Naval Academy, Naval Academy.
1: Right. But in like Uh, Band of Brothers, this character exists as well. And that's the army. So eat a brown one.
0: (laughs) No, I'm afraid not. You do not. You're going to get this is a war movie podcast. And we are trying to appeal to old veterans. And that's the type of thing that they're going to go out and they're going to put two bullets in the hood of their 1967 gto in the garage because they're so mad
1: well my role on the show john is actually to dunk on pedants like you and uh, and that's why i uh would like to bring up my signature segment dunking on the pedants and uh today we're gonna do a slightly different we have a, a modification it's uh, out pedant the pedants oh. so uh, i'm gonna offer you a something that somebody quibbled with on imdb I'm gonna see if either of you you can buzz in with your name, and uh, see if you can see if you can head cannon why this quibble is incorrect. When Ripley is arming to rescue Newt, she takes grenades from a case that is clearly marked forty millimeters. The Marines use pulse rifles with thirty millimeter launchers.
2: Huh.
0: She puts those grenades into a bandolier and then throws them into the fire.
2: Correct. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> those are fire grenades only. Yeah. Boo. Yeah.
1: Suck Booyah. on that, pet ant. I had a lot of fun looking through the the like you know, most of IMTB is like continuity errors, like, oh, there was like three quarters of a cup of coffee in in the coffee cup in this angle, but then in this other angle there wasn't that much coffee at all but like the military pedants that quibble about like you know sergeant apone being referred to as as top but he doesn't have enough stripes on his on his uh chevrons to to be called that is like a whole a whole different breed
0: he doesn't have enough stripes on his chevrons <laughs> oh he doesn't have enough stripes on his chevrons the man said
1: guy i'm you know you're right john i should go back and edit the script that i'm speaking from to be a little bit more
0: oh listen listen if you can't handle the fact that you are a figure of fun on this show then maybe you should go start another show which is called too sensitive to do podcasts with john <laughs> and you can have a bunch of people on that show
1: uh, and it, well, as 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 one third and as one third owner of the name Friendly Fire, if I do go do that show, I'm going to need you guys to change this show to John can't keep the podcast moving because he's too caught up in somebody slightly misspeaking to be entertaining.
0: Listen, I would I'm not the one that threw the brakes on this conversation to like to throw his dirty diaper around the room I just made a funny joke
2: I'm really excited to hear this conversation after the credits when this episode comes out I think this is right
1: in the middle of the episode like you thought it was a war movie podcast it's just a war podcast and it's Ben and John going to war with each other slowly over the course of 35 episodes
0: this is the after dark stuff that uh, that subscribers get access to
1: <laughs> we're on express elevator to hell
0: is this film just the like oh the superior firepower up against a an enemy that doesn't play by the
2: rules or is there something uh, about the I mean who who are the enemy? You could argue that it's Waylon Yutani the entire time.
0: Mhm. Did Waylon Yutani did, did they send the initial crew out there? Like how did how did they initially discover the aliens in the movie Alien?
2: Like comparing the two Red Dawn's, I I really want to try to focus the pod on this film as its own thing. And like the way we did with Star Wars too, like there's the greater aliens universe is something we could really get in the weeds on. And I think a lot of people who saw this movie saw made this their first and only aliens universe film before being disappointed by the 3rd.
0: Yeah, I think I, I think this was the first one I saw and for the most and for the most part the only one i remember seeing yeah who do you think the enemy is capitalism and capitalism has unleashed and continues to not understand the danger of these uh space lizards but like you could argue that the aliens are uh nuclear weapons because we have uh they they've been unleashed and we don't understand their true power but we continue and, and they proliferate and we continue to uh you know to fail to appreciate the danger and
2: they seek to commoditize something that they don't understand and is also very dangerous too right like burke's right. whole idea is to turn the aliens into uh into a weapon. weaponize them
0: right so it's biological warfare is is it, it's alluding to, I mean, but then at the end, the queen alien, there's an attempt made to humanize her. She's the first one of the enemy that's given any motivation beyond just, uh, assimilate and destroy that scene where Ripley has newt is confronting her and points her flamethrower at the eggs and the queen backs off and her guards back off
1: there's such great like wordless storytelling there too because then you know like the queen basically breaks the deal of i'll leave your eggs alone if you leave me and nude alone
2: (laughs) yeah right because that egg like pops open yeah and the look that ripley gives the queen like are you fucking kidding me (laughs) yeah it's really heavy and
0: at that point also you know there's this like female versus female antagonism mother versus mother That's like unique in war movies, unless you allow for the fact that gunnery sergeants feel like the mothers to their little hens, (laughs) (laughs) which I think does happen in films. Right. You get that feeling that the that the sergeant is the is the mother character. Hmm. But this is a film where it's like mother versus mother there. Uh, that's that's a pretty heavy dynamic that's a pretty heavy energy like universal energy to bring into a war context and into the central conflict
2: besides the mother versus mother relationship there's also the fraternity of all of these marines too like there's a there's a different kind of family being depicted here as well even with uh like strong Integrated female characters in
0: the platoon it's Mm -hmm. still very fraternal.
1: Right. You can tell because of all the chin-ups everyone's doing.
0: Lot of chin-ups. Let's rock! I mean we haven't really talked about the primary female soldier who actually ends up sort of being the primary soldier. The most badass Vasquez. Yeah. Played by a Jewish actress BTW. Really? Who is doing a Hispanic character maybe that would not pass muster in today's world either holy shit she's she's the uh foster mom in uh, terminator 2 yeah.
2: yeah damn they gave her uh dark contact lenses and a spray tan to uh yeah. to make her vasquez wow and you know and she actually does kind of have a little bit of like
0: asa i mean she's got some right. accent too so which is a little complicated little
1: little bit uh like definitely would not pass muster in 2018 like I think you'd have some very some very angry people if you released a film where that happened now
2: yeah agreed her character really gets a chance to step up too because after the marines are wiped out in the first assault it's basically just the her hickson hudson show and she's the one that's that's the
0: most gung-ho every time she never breaks she never cracks you know until that last moment well she Um, cracks when when drake dies she does. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because she and Drake had like some, th- that was the most solid bond of anybody in the film.
1: They were the, uh, they were cam buddies.
2: <laughs> I love that relationship and how it never made it seem as though Drake was trying to fuck her. Or it was like love bond. It was right. like total soldierly love bond. It was It was closer than friends or even closer than what a romance could be. It was like ultimate respect. I think that character in
0: 1986 way more than anything else was the thing that that really resonated at that time. Right. Like Starship Troopers was a, was 10 years later and Starship Troopers really up to the ante on co-ed military portrayal
1: co-ed shower portrayal, for hmm. example.
0: <laughs> uh, but Vasquez as a character really rang everybody's bell because this was 86 was when we were just sort of introducing women into the armed forces in roles that involved more action like this but the the argument was that uh that a woman just wasn't physically strong enough to do to be in combat and that argument persisted all the way through the Clinton years and i mean there's tons and tons of people that would make that argument now but this character was such a like she just was so over capable throughout the film that I think it um, I don't think anybody doubted it because she really the performance really kicks ass. It was just like you had to I, a lot of us, myself included, like walked out of the theater really chewing on Vasquez and just like, whoa. Yeah. Wow. Like, yeah, man.
1: She's very headstrong and very gung ho. But then the second somebody speaks reason to her, she's able to accommodate that. Like when, when Ripley yells like we can't we're not going to go back and rescue them they're they're already done for like there's nothing we can do. Vasquez is prepared to believe that, you know,
0: yeah, well, and she keeps Hudson in line more than anybody else.
2: Jerk off.
0: even though he flips her a lot
2: of of shit at the in the beginning of the film, like he follows her lead, yeah, her emotional journey, I think, might be the most developed because. At the end, she actually arrives at a moment of forgiveness with Gorman when they detonate the grenade in the ventilation shaft. Oh, my God.
0: That's a really touching moment. Yeah. Like, Gorman becomes a hero. And she, in that when he flips that grenade and she puts her hand over it and then, like, they Im- they kind of, like, embrace. Like, she quadruple humanizes. And he does, too. It's, like, really... There's so much going on in that 30 seconds.
1: They don't even give you any time to like chew on it because the next thing that happens is the shockwave from the explosion drops Newt down the ventilation hole.
2: Yeah, Ben, let's talk about how this film develops its story because one of the notes that I wrote down was how strict the script stuck with but, like there's always this thing happens but another thing happens as a consequence. I wrote down, like, 20 of these, but this is a great moment to start talking about it. Like, that grenade knocks Newt down the air vent. They find Newt, but she's taken. Ripley rescues Newt, but she's in a field full of eggs. They escape the queen, but the elevator doesn't come. It's right. butts all the way down. Like, it is <laughs> relentless. They There are no victories without the cost of something else in this film. Right, they get all the way back to the ship, but the queen hitched a ride right right ouch like come on give us a break at a certain point i don't think there's a moment in the film that doesn't come with one of these
1: yeah you, you basically like until the queen is out the airlock you don't get a break and that's that's what's so great and so scary about this movie villain is like it is like biologically optimized to be relentless like, every like you, you shoot the alien, but its blood splashes all over you and burns your skin off, you know?
2: <laughs> and that's, like, the major complaint about modern horror storytelling is, like, both the enemy makes mistakes and your protagonists decide on stupid courses of action. Outside of Gorman being just sort of unfit for leadership, I feel like everyone involved in this film are are making decisions that make practical sense.
1: Right. And Gorman's not necessarily not making smart decisions. He's just not making them fast enough. Right. I guess collecting the ammunition from everybody is like, is is one weird thing because it doesn't seem like the, the order is totally honored. Like, it's like, yeah, here's my magazine, but here's the shotgun I have down the front of my trousers that I'm not giving you the ammunition from.
0: I I feel like the the um, scenes where they where they introduced the perimeter guns, those also introduced a thing that was not in the original film, which is that those guns unloaded, 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 just killed, 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 killed. And then finally, the second time with 10 bullets left, the aliens retreated. It's a thing that wasn't in the in the earlier film. You never got a feeling that the aliens behaved rationally. They were just relentless always. But in that scene we saw that they were capable of being scared or they were capable of of feeling like, okay, this isn't working, let's regroup and try something else. And that was that introduced the idea that they were something that they had sentience. They were something more than just Mm -hmm. endless soldiers. Which I think gave the film a lot more tension, you know, and it and it allowed for that scene later when she and the queen had that bargain.
2: It gave you a feeling of like, oh, they are thinking. In a lot of movies, I think a frequent complaint is about its spatial orientation and that during action scenes, you can't really tell where the characters are in relation to each other or in relation to their setting. I think this film, if there's one knock against it, it doesn't do a great job in establishing its geography in relation to anything else. Like The the compound seems a little bit unknowable geographically, but I think that helps to serve the claustrophobia of it. What did you think of that?
0: In the original film, I had no idea where we were geographically at any time. In this movie, there's a little bit more of that outside footage mm-hmm. and a clear delineation between the atmosphere building and the other quarters, right? Because they make that transit between the one and the other. They fortify the the control tower at a certain point, and there's just a little bit more geography. Uh, but I, I agree that throughout the whole second act of the film, like I have no idea whether that building has 400 floors or four (laughs) um, or, you know, whether it was like also wide as well as tall. Like I, it's um, when she goes back in, you do get a sense that she's making a long, long trip both down and then throughout. And that's kind of important. You know, she leaves those flares And as she's running back, it's a little detail because there's so much steam and like and light in those scenes. But you do see the flares. She is following her flares back to the elevator. So that, I think, gives the sense that she doesn't know what the geography is either. And I wasn't as bothered by it this time.
2: Right. Neither was I. Maybe that's because there were so many other distracting things in the film. Like it's it's tension lies elsewhere. Ben what did you think of it? You're usually pretty conscious of geography.
1: I think that like in an in individual battle like it's pretty obvious that the aliens are coming from you know point x and they're exiting via door z or whatever. Like I almost think that the the shapes of the spaces feel more like metaphorical in this film in a weird way. Like in a Red Dawn 2012 when everybody's like, you know, shooting Kalashnikovs down off the top of a roof and then the camera turns around and you're like, wait, which roof are they on? Like, that's (laughs) like, that's a real, they're trying to establish like the dimensions of a real battle in a real place. And I feel like almost like the, the lack of information in this movie is being used to amplify how scary it is. And it's, like, intentional in a way that it feels like a mistake sometimes in other movies. And they even, like, go so far as to have maps in this movie of the spaces. Yeah. But they're, like, confusing. And, you know, you could never read this map in a million years.
0: Yeah. You're right. I think that is... I think it is intentional. Yeah. And successful.
1: Yeah. S- successful in that. Definitely, yeah. Like, I, I feel like they made an active choice. Like, like, we can make this space anything we want it to be, so... Let's do it this way because this will be scarier.
0: Why not make it suck? (laughs) Scene is disorganized. I've seen this movie in a couple of different contexts. And I also, you know, it's a movie uh, and not reality. But I caught myself many times, like all tensed up, like in an awkward sitting position (laughs) shoulders hunched squeezing you know my uh my arms just sort of and then there would be something that released the tension and i would like relax for a second and realize how physically torqued up i was just because of that claustrophobia and the fact that their sensors only ever indicate that they are being converged upon from all sides.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, <laughs> those beeps never start to get further apart.
0: <laughs> no, the, the, those sensors are fucking awful. That's just like, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting a
2: reading. Oh, there's 10,000 of them and they're coming from all directions. Yeah.
0: It's like, fuck.
2: Yeah, it's like sensor as tempo, right? Mm hmm. Right. It's literally
1: like beep, 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 yeah. beep, 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 beep. You, you want to get some nice alien Doppler effect as those aliens run away.
2: As a parent, John, what did you make of Carrie Henn's portrayal as Newt, and how did her character affect you? Did it affect you differently, you think, now than it would have uh, 20 years ago? I was on the lookout for that.
0: And there are a lot of movies, uh, scary movies or, you know, uh, Liam Neeson movies, whatever kind of movies those are. <laughs> That's where its own genre. I feel like they very cheaply... Uh, basically take a child put that child in jeopardy and then we're all supposed to respond to uh the fact that the child is being hurt and it's a it's a super cheap thing uh, that you see in films all the time where it's just like oh hurt a child because you don't have good screenwriting skills Mm -hmm. like you were not able to make a movie interesting so you hurt a child. It's like the worst possible shortcut. But in this film, like Newt is, and and even leaving out her appearance earlier on, the one thing I didn't need was establishing Newt's character early. Mm-hmm. Because Newt appeared in the original film just sort of halfway through. It's like, oh, they find this little ragamuffin running around in the heating vents. Like, we didn't need to see her back when she was a nice little girl with parents. Like, it, yeah, it, she worked as a, as a character that just appears. Yeah. But she was, she was fully fledged. Like she came in, she was all shell shocked. But from the moment she says, nobody calls me Rebecca. My name is nude. She's more than just a cousin, Oliver. She's not just there to be cute and give thumbs ups. You know she advances the plot she's the one that knows her way around the geography of the station better than anybody
2: she acts in her own interest in a way that a lot of child characters never do right like she she seeks to save herself at every point and she's she's wise about it
0: right when ripley says to her like well you know we've got these marines or whatever she's just like doesn't matter it's not gonna matter you're like whoa kid kid's got a thousand yard stare so so right at the end when she falls down the heating vent and you want to say like oh come on please come on don't do this to us and then you've got her wading around in the water with the little doll it's the it, it, it it does cross the line of like okay now you're just fucking with us you know you've basically taken this character who's who's totally real and And she she kind of gets diminished a little bit. She's turned into just a little girl holding a doll wading through waist deep water that, you know, is full of bugs. Right. But it only lasts a little while. Once she's grabbed by the alien, then the fact that it's like a little girl in jeopardy goes away again, because this isn't the first time that we've seen somebody we love get grabbed and watched a character wrestle with the desire to go get them. Right. Right so we've seen that a bunch and it's it's just that in the past in this film it was never clear it was pretty clear in fact that you couldn't go get them because
2: we see it several times like I know he's still alive but he's gone man he's gone well I guess that might be uh, another Vietnam metaphor there too the idea of a of a prisoner of war being taken and unable to be rescued
0: yeah there it is Rambo 2 once again <laughs> <laughs> but i but I as a parent, I didn't feel manipulated at any point other than that one scene where the, she's where she's wading through the water and you're just like, this is really you know this is like horror movie trope rather than terror movie, which it is most of the time
2: that composition was so different from so many other scenes too, because everywhere on the station is claustrophobic, and yet the moment Newt falls into the into the sewer. That set looks like the biggest, most wide open one that we've seen. It's almost mm-hmm. shot like a movie poster with with a lot of uh, empty space.: What are the colonists of uh, Hadley's Hope eating?:
0: Yeah, it's basically the trash compactor.
2: <laughs> the deeply unpopular Hadley's hope P. F. Changs. <laughs> <laughs> this came out a couple years after the Terminator. I don't know what made the bigger splash for Cameron, but the establishing shots in this film are amazing, and efficiency keeps on being, like, the buzzword for me, but camera never reveals anything in a shot that isn't paid off later. Like, you get the idea that there are these power loaders and several of them. You get the shot of the second dropship. You see the airlock very early on yeah. and then not for another two hours. The cameras and the vitals that they establish when the Marines first go down to the planet— like there is nothing that is shown that is not paid off later and I think that's just expertly done. And it's something I didn't notice from the first Terminator film. Like I I feel like this is Cameron really coming into his own here. Yeah, I think the the first Terminator
1: film is more of a Roger Corman situation. Like Yeah. It definitely earned him like, hey, like, give me a massive budget and I will make a massive movie status but it uh you know like the, <laughs> the effects in the first terminator movie are like super corny now and this is a totally different situation like two years later he's working at such a higher level
0: there are a few moments in this movie where now i look at it and i realize like oh it's there's there's some kind of green screen thing happening here that changed the color tonality or like things look washed out or things the focus the focal length have have changed
2: somehow there's some rear projection going on
1: yeah like when the when the dropship crashes and they all have to run from the falling wreckage that's definitely a rear projection effect
0: yeah and i think the um when she's standing on the platform and she's like oh bishop and then he shows up and it's kind of like there's a there's a lot going on special effects wise in those scenes but i think watching it before and even now the weird uh, green screen chemical vibe the the different focus uh, focus foci and mm-hmm. the kind of the fog in the room type of thing i almost felt like the the weakness of the special effects at the time added to the Experience of the otherworldliness of it. Right. Mm. The heat waves kind of did a lot of masking of that. I don't know how they accomplished that effect.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Like that last scene where she's hugging New to her chest on the platform, and she thinks Bishop has bugged out and left her there to die, and all is lost, is like not a realistic shot at all, and yet it totally works somehow.
0: Yeah, it does. It works like the special effects. The special effects really work like Blade Runner. Now, when I watch it, I can see I can see there are people standing outside holding giant lights (laughs) and beaming them in the windows. But I've seen that movie 60 times. So you start to be able to see the special effects. And I'm sure if you watch this 60 times, you would see them, too. But it's very successful at at creating an atmosphere but the thing is i didn't know i mean the terminator special effects like when he transports back to the alley and we see him like oh here he is like that's all terrible
2: john it's late
0: but it it just didn't matter because terminator was so it just i mean that just dropped like a bomb on us too yeah in the era
1: well we have uh five more avatar movies to look forward to in james Cameron's immediate future so
2: <laughs> uh, that makes me so sad. Yeah. Uh, what?
0: Do you mean that there aren't really five Avatar movies, are there?
1: That, like Sigourney Weaver's IMDb has her listed in Avatar 2 through 6 or something. <laughs> and, and like the last one coming out in 2026, I think.
2: He's such a competent storyteller that it just makes me sad that he's using all his resources toward a technological version of storytelling versus what we saw early on in his career. Like he's, I think he's one of the country's best filmmakers and I mean, this is self-inflicted what he's doing. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, he's, I think like part of that is the, you know, he's the guy that told Fox to cut him a bigger check and fuck off when they came down to see why the abyss was taking so long and so over budget. Like, yeah, (laughs) I think, I think that, uh, the two things are kind of part and parcel. He's got a crazy ego and, like, believes in himself so unflinchingly. He, like, broke up with with one of his, I don't know if it's was Catherine Bigelow or one of his other wives, but was literally like, yeah, like, so I'm the, like, one of the only people on planet Earth that can make movies like I do, so I'm going to kind of focus on that and not our marriage. <laughs> like, Boy. that was literally his justification for ending a, a marriage. <laughs>
0: Well, Catherine Bigelow went on to steal an Oscar, uh, or not steal, I mean, she justifiably won an Oscar uh, that he was nominated for, so that must have hurt a little bit. Gotta say booyah to that.
1: (laughs) She's got a couple of movies on our list.
0: Yeah, she's killer. Within the the, uh, nerd uh, movie people, which I throw you guys both into the... Hmm. the stink stinking soup of... stop hurting my feelings john <laughs> is cameron regarded as like a guilty pleasure or is he regarded as a uh, like a true auteur or both or what
1: i would imagine you'd get very different answers from different people but i think uh like i, I almost am excited for avatar 2 because i think he really shines in his sequels like, this mm. movie as a sequel to Alien, Terminator 2 as a sequel to Terminator, like, taking the basics of a universe that has been established and, like, extrapolating out, like, what else is true if the if this set of things are true is one of the things he's great at. And uh, I almost feel like that's, like, a little overdone in Avatar 1, so, like, maybe maybe he's done and... And maybe it's just going to be a mess from, from now on. But I think his sequels have been great. And I think a lot of his movies are awesome.
2: People have almost totally forgotten about the first Abyss movie, which was just called Abyss? Question mark? Uh-huh. <laughs> Before being followed by his definitive The Abyss sequel. Uh-huh. Abysses. <laughs> Abyssi. The third movie was abysmal, though oh no oh, oh.
0: come on <laughs> okay adam now just cringed at his feelings. own pun
2: <laughs> <laughs> everything in me tightened up after saying that if this, if this is the caliber of this podcast i'm gonna be the sad one you're
1: gonna love
2: this every podcast episode has a rating scale custom made to the film that we've seen this film's no different uh, for the film Aliens, I am assigning a five-item scale based on one superior item. You don't often get great product placement in <laughs> science fiction, guys, and often you'll see you'll see it is cloying, like in the form of the Budweiser classic in the JJ Abrams Star Trek film, uh, especially when they attempt to. To project modern brands into the future but one brand makes it into the aliens universe and is fairly obscure throughout like they don't give it a ton of screen time they don't give it a lot of compositions where it's not covered up by something else in the foreground of course I'm talking about Ripley's Reebok shoes Mm -hmm. Uh, one of those shoes was ripped from her foot as the alien queen was being sucked out of the airlock Uh, it's a shoe that saved her life And for the film's ability to develop its ensemble cast, which is one of my favorite things about it, uh, the way that it depicts a lot of emotions, like not just bravery in the military sense, but like fear in the horror sense and even comedy, for its relentless pace of storytelling, I think Aliens is not just a great war film or a great sci-fi film or a great horror film. It is a great film period it's one of my favorite films of all time. It deserves five Reebok shoes. So that's two pairs of shoes and then an extra shoe to complete the five. (laughs) One
1: that went out the airlock. Yeah. Yeah, man. Same. Uh, I think, I think this is a five Reebok film for me as well. Uh, I just looked up, can you buy those Reeboks online? And I'm seeing them for like 750 bucks on eBay.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, they Reebok famously released them a couple years ago, only in men's sizes, and the outrage about that was... Oh, man. ...pronounced. Yeah, the alien stomper high is what they're called.
1: Dumb move, Reebok. Uh, wow. Reebok gets zero shoes, but aliens <laughs> yeah. gets five.
2: That was Burke's decision as the marketing exec of that project. <laughs> I think as a war movie, this... It works at a a lot of,
0: as we've discussed, like all the different war movie set pieces that we see kind of done in a different novel and cool, exciting way in this. So it does pass muster as a war movie uh, and I like it a lot. I am not a horror movie fan. Um, And that's just, it's not that I don't appreciate them as works of art. I just don't like... Being surprised by spiders, you know, coming out of trap doors, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't like turning a corner and Jason is standing there with a knife. I don't like that tension. It feels a lot of times cheap and corny, like you're like you're putting a child in jeopardy. But it's just like, oh, don't go, you know, don't go in there. Like any kind of movie where you can imagine an audience saying like oh why would you go outside you know it's coming from inside the house all those tropes i don't like and so there are moments in this movie where there's just a little too much of that for me
2: the like boo stuff accompanied by like the orchestral sting to go with it yeah
0: yeah where where what we don't see in war movies is a lot of that there's a lot of tension in this movie that does feel like they're fighting the Viet Cong, an unseen enemy that has that seems to be all around them. Uh, but what the Viet Cong never does in a war movie is go,
2: boom! <laughs> <laughs> Do you think war deserves a horror movie technique in order to make it seem scarier in a film? No, the opposite. I feel like, like for instance, wh- the perimeter guns...
0: Uh, for most of the, that scene, we don't see the enemy getting killed at all. All we see is the bullets running down the counter. Mm-hmm. We don't see the gore. It's all left to our imagination. And at first, you're like, "Are those guns malfunctioning?" But then you realize, no, they're uh, every one of those bullets is finding a home. They're just they just keep coming, and that's very effective sort of war movie stuff. It's unusual because it's not, you know, that's not a Saving Private Ryan thing, but it's like, it's not this like uh, the thing drops down out of the heating vent type of thing. So I can, I'm going to give it four Reeboks because it's so good at so many levels, but I don't need the, I don't need the boo. Hmm. And I don't think the film needed it either, except that it's, it's just irresistible. You know, it's just irresistible to put those shots in there and there are a million worse movies about that but but that little bit of that element in this is like (laughs) that's maybe not a fault of the film i'm sure there are people already they have their pencils out they're scribbling on their notebook paper (laughs) john roderick doesn't understand science fiction (laughs) and that's fine it's uh start your own podcast
1: it's really great to hear the uh, esteem that you hold for our fans (laughs) (laughs)
0: John. <laughs> no, I only the only the fans that are writing me on notebook paper. Those are the only ones I'm contemptuous. <laughs> I think our I think our fans are like, in a lot of cases, the smartest podcast fans I've ever seen. Oh wow! Right, and I, just turn the corner into straight pandering, like <laughs> full on raw meat pandering.
1: I would uh, I would tend to agree with that though. Like we do, we we get the occasional you know concern troll or. Or just jerk or whatever, but like a lot of the time, like the online discussion about these shows only adds to my understanding of the mm-hmm. movie we watched, and I, that's like really cool. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that any of these smarty pants are getting anything out of listening to three yo-yos like
2: us. <laughs> Totes. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Well, with all of our ordnance being expended, do we have a guy? I have a guy.
1: I was hoping John would keep the floor and just keep
0: talking. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I want you to I want you <laughs> no, to no, tell no. your you, guy. You say your little no, guy, so, John. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna be last guy. John's no. guy
2: is the viewer of the show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> My guy is Bishop. I just uh, I felt his pain in like trying to you know, trying to earn Ripley's respect throughout the film. Like he really wants to like he is also sympathetic to terrifying experience she had previously with synthetics or uh <laughs> what's his preferred terminology i prefer the term artificial person myself the, i think the thing that made me really identify with him was that long crawl through the uh oil pipe out to the colony transmitter because uh that's kind of how it feels making a podcast with you guys just uh Feels like I'm uh, I'm crammed in a pipe and I'm I'm crawling on my belly until I get to that transmitter.
2: That scene has one of my favorite pieces of nonverbal acting when they give him the pistol and he looks at the pistol like, "What the fuck am I supposed to do with this?" and then hands it back <laughs> yeah. before they seal That's him in. Pretty
1: great. The way he holds it is like yeah. I've never touched one of these before. It's fucking so great. great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for that reason, Bishop is my guy.
0: I would think that Bishop would be your guy because you also have mayonnaise for blood.
1: (laughs) That's just because I eat so much mayonnaise.
2: How terrific was that scene where he's ripped in twain? That was pretty awesome. Adam, who's your guy? Uh, I don't prefer to choose the star of the film as my guy at any point, but there are things about Ripley that I really admire and see some similarities in myself in. I think mostly it's that she reserves her fear for when she's in solitude like her her display of being fearful and like makes herself a stoic when she's out in public even though she's very not okay to be on LV426 she is very terrified to go back into the base like she manages to hold it together for most of the film outside of losing it on Gorman
1: Well and you guys both also look great in a tank top and underpants matching set yeah mm-hmm.
2: That's part of Agreed. it. And when she loses it on Gorman, that's mostly like impatience with incompetence. And that is a thing that like as I get closer to 40, I am finding uh, more and more is a thing for me. Like I'm I'm growing more and more impatient with people. I have flights of anger <laughs> about about how impatient I am with incompetence. So I don't know. Those are things that I particularly resonate with ripley about so she is my guy
0: so you're saying that she's an angry white man
2: yeah yeah <laughs> angry middle-aged white man how can i twist ripley into my worldview? <laughs> you know what's great about
0: ripley is that she confirms all of my biases yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh now now rob we're gonna have john say his guy now but make sure to edit it in before us
0: no <laughs> no, no no it's intrinsic to my guy that it'd be last uh my guy is ripley's cat who stays behind mm. uh the only sensible move of any character in this whole film the cat does not go back out into space the cat somehow managed to chill out on the space station through the all the events of this film which is where i would have been curled up on ripley's bed just like no reason to go back out there whatever whatever they were tantalizing ripley with like reinstatement it's like screw you send me back to earth i'll work on a farm
2: (laughs) this might have been in a film set far into the future uh, about terrifying aliens and science fiction weaponry might have been the biggest leap that you had to take as a viewer because I, having married a woman with a very close relationship with her cat, would never believe Ripley to leave a cat behind. (laughs) This cat is like her only tie to her previous life and her humanity. Like the cat is the only thing familiar to her. I don't believe that she would have left it behind. Jonesy should have come. It was a strange moment for sure when
0: she was like, you're going to stay here was like why of all the things that need to be protected, yeah, is the cat uh what you're protecting? But then I was like, "That's me, bro." In a nutshell, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Why protect John is a question yeah. that Ben and I ask ourselves all the time. <laughs> I know you're like in the ship. You're coming with.
0: <laughs> I'm like ah. Okay, guys,
2: it's that time of the show where we pick the next film. We can't do a sci-fi film. Right, like we've done too many in a row we could do one more
1: it's it's three okay. in a row would be uh, would be the um, where it triggers separating those out it would be much trickier mm-hmm. than separating out World War II films because right. they're not all about the same war <laughs> uh, fair enough but uh, yeah we have a big long list of the 161 titles on it John do you want to uh, throw out a number
0: uh, let's do 45
1: 45 back in the warm embrace of world war ii it's a 1970 film directed by brian g hutton kelly's heroes interesting john you put this
0: one on the list i did yeah kelly's heroes quite a bit closer to i think the kind of movie that we thought uh, we were going to be watching. I know. I say that every time. I mean, it's got Telly Savalas and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> it literally has Don Rickles in it. Oh man! Yes. <laughs> it is not going to be hard to find our Rickles in this movie. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it also has Donald Sutherland, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Oh man! And uh, the and Captain Stubing of the Love Boat, Gavin MacLeod.
2: Does anyone avenge Harry Dean Stanton in this film? Because <laughs> you're contractually obligated to avenge him, right?
1: Avenge me! It was nice to see a little glimpse of him up on the screen in, in today's movie.
0: Yeah, that was. He flashed by. But this is very similar. Kelly's Heroes is very similar to Three Kings. It's a little bit of a, a prequel to Three Kings. Um, similar sort of background.
2: So I think we're gonna we're gonna enjoy it a lot. You could say Hudson was the Rickles of aliens. Also, this <laughs> film had a this film had a Rickles. Yeah. Oh, there.
0: there I did have one problem. I've never been a huge Bill Paxton fan. Why not? Even uh, even in HBO's uh, spectacular uh, Big Love television show, I was always like, ah, oh, that guy. <laughs> but his line readings in this movie. He is always talking in this voice that's like really. Oh my god! I'm just like, come on, stop it. Game over, John. Game over. I know that's his character,
1: but <laughs> you're you're now in some real pretty shit with me, John.
0: You're gonna you're gonna die on the field of Bill Paxton. Yeah. Uh, Mount. I've uh, heard Mount you say Paxton. a
2: lot of offensive shit, John, but yeah. none <laughs> were more offensive than that. Yeah. Okay. This is a take your fucking time hot time, take and shove it up your ass. <laughs> You secure that shit, John Alright, I'll take that I'll I'll take it back, I'm sorry John, get over here, get over here (laughs) Get over here Hey John, look into my eye
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, when he fucking pops out of the cryopod And he's got the stogie like ready to go And he's just fucking chewing on that thing Oh, so good Pretty good, pretty good So fucking great that is the end of our show uh next week kelly's heroes in the meantime for john roderick and adam pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts
2: friendly fire is a maximum fun podcast it's hosted by adam pranica benjamin r harrison and john roderick this show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Ditmer. Do you feel like joining in the conversation? Well, you can, over at Facebook and Reddit. We've got pages there that you can talk to a whole bunch of other fans. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Please use the hashtag Friendly Fire when you tweet. Thanks. We'll see you next week.
0: MaximumFun.org
2: Comedy
0: and culture.